0: Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update Multiple Myeloma Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Nupur Raja to discuss the clinical approach to patients with myeloma, and she began her discussion by presenting an older patient from her practice who was recently diagnosed with the disease. So, a
1: couple months back, we saw a 73 year old gentleman. And he had been treated at a community hospital initially, seen, had back pain, which is a typical way of how some of these patients present. He'd been complaining of back pain for approximately three months or so, and it had been conservatively treated. He was getting a lot of NSAIDs at the time for the treatment of this back pain. He eventually got some kind of spine imaging, and what was seen on the spine imaging was multiple compression fractures, and he was referred to a spine specialist, so he was seen by an orthopedics doctor in the community, and he underwent vertebral augmentation or kyphoplasties of two of these vertebral bodies, just mainly as a measure of controlling his pain. While doing this, they obviously Did a biopsy of one of those vertebral bodies which was consistent with a plasma cytoma. And once they saw that, then he had the whole entire workup for an associated plasma cell dyscrasia. So retrospectively, you know, if you think about this, he obviously has multiple myeloma with bone involvement, which was what was causing his compression fractures. And he did have a tissue diagnosis at the time of the kyphoplasty, which showed plasma cytomas. And then blood work and urine analysis has kind of confirmed the diagnosis
0: of multiple myeloma. Now, this man presented with back pain. Of course, a lot of people have back pain. Typically in myeloma, do you see delays in diagnosis where people are not aware of it? Do you see a lot of patients like that or is it usually a pretty obvious diagnosis?
1: No, it's you know not an obvious diagnosis. And you know, by the time they come to places like ours, they've been packaged and we have the diagnosis. So as you know, the symptoms of multiple myeloma can be fairly vague, fairly nonspecific. People present with pain, fatigue, tiredness and these could be attributed to a whole lot of other things. And at somebody his age, the obvious first thing to think about with back pain is, did he pull a muscle or was it just arthritis? And, you know, I think the mistake we end up making is end up just treating it symptomatically before we go to imaging. I do think one has to be cautious about how you treat these pains, specifically in a situation like this, where he got a lot of NSAID treatment, and that can certainly be a bad thing for his kidneys, specifically in the setting of light chain disease burden like this gentleman had.
0: I'm curious how you explain to patients what multiple myeloma is and how you explain it to this man. I see that he's a retired oil rigger. I don't know you know, what his level of education understanding was.
1: I start out by telling them that myeloma is, although it's his bones which have been affected, it is a bone marrow disease. And really, it's a disease of plasma cells, which typically live in the bone marrow. And when something goes wrong with these plasma cells, there is a genetic aberration with those plasma cells. You start getting in excess of these plasma cells in the bone marrow. That then can manifest into myeloma.
0: So there were a couple other things that he presented with that I'm curious, again, how you explained to him or his sister. One was the fact that he was in renal failure, and the other was the fact that his calcium was elevated. Yeah. How did you sort of explain to him why that was happening?
1: So the renal failure, you know, was because of the fact that obviously he was being treated. And this is a teaching point for all of us healthcare providers also. We do need to be careful about how much pain medication we keep giving patients without necessarily knowing what the underlying diagnosis is. And in this situation, I'm sure the fact that he was on a lot of NSAIDs has compromised his renal function somewhat. So the one big teaching for most of my myeloma patients is if you need pain medicine, You know, NSAIDs is something you stay away from. I did talk to him and went through this whole process of this presence of this protein in his blood which is actually causing damage to the kidneys making the blood more viscous, depositing into the kidneys and you can get myeloma kidney which can cause kidney problems. I do try and reinforce the fact that they need to keep well hydrated. You know we keep talking about drinking between two and three liters of fluid a day and most of us are unable to do this but with an underlying diagnosis of myeloma I think it just becomes more important. So I talked to him about his renal failure in the context of his specific disease here and with the intent of trying to tell him here's what you can do to help the kidneys really and by hydrating yourself drinking a lot every day is a good idea keeping away from drugs like ibuprofen etc is the right thing to do and some of the opioids are actually better pain control drugs in a situation like this they are the safest especially when you don't want to do damage to the kidneys and the last thing is you know we use this as talking about going into treatment for his myeloma because if it's ultimately the myeloma protein which is causing the kidney damage, the way to improve or reverse that kidney damage would be to take care of that protein and reduce that protein load by reducing the tumor burden in this patient. So talk to him about all of that. We talked a little bit about the calcium also. You know, he presented very classically with the bone lesions, with the amount of bone disease he had on his imaging. What tends to happen in these patients is calcium leaches out into the bloodstream. And that's why initially they have high calcium levels. High calcium levels are certainly toxic to the kidneys as well. So it's not just all of the protein and the NSAIDs which cause the kidney problems. I'm sure the high calcium level also has contributed to it. And again, this is largely a reflection of his bone disease, which is again fairly common in people with myeloma. So we educated around that. And I think this point is really important because at presentation or when they have a bony progression, patients with myeloma can certainly have high calcium levels in about 20 or 30 percent of people. But over time, most of us will then want our patients to be on calcium, but that happens much later. And that's something we have to do in terms of educating not just the patient, but also the healthcare providers because, you know, once they're being treated, they are going to be needed to be calcium replete as well for their bone
0: health going forward. So I want to talk a little bit about his initial treatment. In general, there's some type of systemic treatment, but I guess one of the main issues here is the approach to the, quote, younger versus, quote, older patient, and particularly the issue of the use of high-dose therapy with bone marrow transplantation. Can you kind of talk a little bit about how that fits into the plan? and how it fits into the plan of a 73-year-old man.
1: Sure. So, you know, when we think about treating multiple myeloma, the first question you ask yourself is, am I going to take him to high therapy and do an autograph? So when we're talking about transplant, we're talking about an autologous transplant. You know, transplant to me is a bit of a misnomer. I do think it's basically high that we're giving our patients. So we do want to keep that into consideration because that then helps us figure out what your best induction treatment would be. You know, we do not go by age so much, not in the United States at least, in terms of whether you're a transplant eligible candidate versus not. And I think what dictates whether I transplant a patient or not is the performance status, sometimes dictated by the disease as well. But largely, if you're able to tolerate a transplant, you should have that option of a transplant going forward. In this 73-year-old, I was not necessarily thinking about a transplant because there is data specifically in older patients where we've looked at transplant and not just one transplant but two transplants and compared it to new drugs as well and new drugs tend to do better so as you get older and certainly about the age of 70 I'm a little less inclined to consider transplant in people only because you know we have lots of good options transplants certainly or hydroschemotherapy is not a curative option for myeloma. It increases remission durations in patients, but it does not cure your myeloma. In the younger patient population, you know, this is a question which is being debated even right now, and we are doing studies to address that question. So does not mean that if you're young and fit, everybody is going to benefit from transplants. Certainly, transplant has been great in terms of improving remission durations, but we've never been able to demonstrate a survival benefit in people getting a transplant. So, We are doing ongoing clinical trials looking at early versus delayed transplant. Everybody gets an initial induction treatment. Most people who you think you may be transplanting, the key to remember is you should at least consider harvesting them and storing their stem cells. And this is largely because there are certain drugs that we use, like lenalidomide, for example, which might, in fact, if you keep focus on lenalidomide too long, you might impact their stem cell yields. So once in remission, if you're thinking about a transplant, consider collecting and storing. It is a choice and I offer it as a choice to patients. There are some patients, if they're not on a clinical trial, if they're on a clinical trial, then, you know, we do what they randomized to and we'll have the data on transplant versus no transplant, I believe, later next year. Until then, I certainly collect stem cells on everybody who I'm thinking of transplanting. transplanting going down the road. There is no data to suggest that early versus late transplant, one's better than the other. And if you've collected stem cells and you wanted to wait and get the transplant a little bit later, that would be perfectly reasonable as well. You know, it's a discussion with the patient. And ultimately, this decision is made after the patient understands what it entails. And this gentleman, I haven't talked a whole lot about transplant given his age of 73. I think it's less likely that he's going to go in for a transplant. If he was 65, though, and on the cusp there, we transplant people. I've transplanted 70-year-olds also, 71 years also. So it really depends on how they are physiologically.
0: So in a minute, I'm going to ask you how you would have managed him if he were younger and you were thinking about transplant. But first, I'm curious what actually happened to him. What were the options that you thought about, and what did you actually recommend?
1: So initially, you know, because of his renal insufficiency, we used a bortezomib-based regimen. The bortezomib-based regimen, it's safe in renal failure. His light chain burden really crept up between even his first dose of bortezomib, and within a week, it doubled and although his kidneys were stable, I did add cytoxan in him. So he got bortezomib with cytoxan, the so called Cybordex regimen. The first cycle, despite his age, I did treat because the goal here is to try and get his kidneys back to normal as quickly as possible. And I did use the intensive treatment. You know, we gave it to him day one, four, eight, and eleven, the twice a week.
0: The bortezomib?
1: Yeah, the classic Cybordex regimen, which is. of the recommended regimen for younger patients. So as far as young or old is concerned, I think your goal in both patients is generally get them into the best possible response that you can. When there is a organ which has been compromised, in his case, certainly the kidneys have been compromised, you want to get in there and treat it as quickly as possible so that hopefully you'll see a reversal of that kidney function. So the good news with this gentleman was when he got the Cyborg X, his kidneys have improved his light chain burden has decreased, his kidneys are now, his creatinine is 1.6, so it's a whole lot better. And going forward, I'm not going to continue with the classic cyborg dex regimen of twice a week bortezomib, but do a more gentler approach in his case, which would be giving him bortezomib once a week with Cytoxan days 1, 8 and 15 and we do the bortezomib four weeks in a row with one week off. We've used in this gentleman I've used bortezomib subcutaneously. I don't think there's a big difference between IV versus subcutaneous even in the situation of renal failure. It's about just getting those doses in here. So the good news is his kidneys have turned around and so far he's tolerated treatment. I think the key to deciding how intensive your treatment has to be. You know, in addition to getting a good response, you also have to make sure that the patient is actually tolerating the treatment. And weekly doses of bortezomib are extremely well-tolerated in younger, older, all patients.
0: And he also received dexamethasone. What was the dose? And did he have any problems with it? What kind of problems do you see, if any, particularly in older patients?
1: So he got not the 40 milligrams, but he was given 20 milligrams of dexamethasone on the day that he got the bortezomib, and he got 20 milligrams the day after. So dexamethasone and all of this is probably the toughest drug for most patients to tolerate. And, you know, with the 20, he still had trouble sleeping the night he got the dexamethasone. He was a little more wired up, a little more anxious. And we do tend to use drugs like lorazepam to help help with this. You know, going forward, if he's responding well, dexamethasone would be one of the drugs that I might consider dropping the doses on. So dropping from the 20 milligrams to 10 milligrams would be perfectly reasonable. Dropping the day after the bortezomib would also be perfectly reasonable. You know, the response to dexamethasone in patients, not just his age, certainly in older patients, it's harder, but even in younger patients, it can be extremely difficult for them. And there's two ends of the spectrum. There are some patients who feel fantastic. They feel like Superman when they're on the dexamethasone. And then the others, especially the younger ones, you'll see a lot of emotional ability. You'll see depression. You'll see mood changes. And then one really has to adjust the dose of dexamethasone based on how that patient is responding to it. And then you have to intervene with whatever supportive care measures you can put in with the dexamethasone.
0: So I'm kind of curious. Now, this man had this urgent problem of the renal failure that was very concerning, but his, he had normal renal function. Maybe they hadn't given him the NSAIDs. Who knows? How would that have affected this initial choice of treatment?
1: So if he hadn't had renal insufficiency, what I would have liked to do with him is treated him with, we have a combination of lenalidomide with bortezomib and dexamethasone. So although he's not a transplant patient, we would still have used RVD, but not RVD in the conventional doses that we use in the transplant setting. So that's a combination of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. What we are using, and this is a clinical trial that we have ongoing at our site and a couple of other sites nationally as well. This is using bortezomib on a weekly schedule given subcutaneously four weeks out of five repeated every six weeks. We use lenalidomide at a dose which is a little bit lower than what's used not the conventional 25 milligrams but we use 15 milligrams of lenalidomide days one through 21 and the dexamethasone is either 20 milligrams like this gentleman received or if they have issues over time we drop it to 10 again around the doses of bortezomib. So we refer to this regimen in our place as RVD light. It's an extremely well tolerated regimen. And again, you know, as I pointed out earlier, whether you're young or old, I think the treatment goals should be try and get the best possible response and use your best drugs up front if you can.
0: Now, another regimen that is used not infrequently in older patients is lenalidomide with dexamethasone without any proteasome inhibitor. Do you ever use that, and in what situations?
1: We have used lenalidomide and dexamethasone in certain situations in older people. And, you know, that's largely dictated by, you know, if they're having a harder time coming to the hospital on a weekly basis. Not everybody can in their 70s and 80s get a right to come to a clinic to get your weekly bortezomib. So in those kinds of situations, sure, we'll start with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. If we don't see the kind of response we want to, we can always consider adding the bortezomib. So I don't necessarily use... Things like cytogenetics to dictate whether I use one or the other treatment. I as of right now use my biologic endpoint as response. I want to try and get the best possible response for that particular patient. You do have other things that you play into your decision making. There's a small percentage of myeloma patients who do present with neuropathy at the outset as well. It's about 15% of patients with myeloma can present with neuropathy. And if that is the case, then I will not use bortezomib in the upfront setting. I I would just use lenalidomide and dexamethasone and see how they do. But outside of that, you know, if they're able to get their weekly bortezomib, I tend to use a combination.
0: And in these older patients, how long do you continue therapy? Do you sort of give them a break from therapy? What's the long-term plan?
1: So in the older patient also, I think if there's anything we've learned in myeloma in the last few years is, you know, your depth of remission really is dependent on the duration of your treatment. So stopping treatment too early just is going to result in a relapse. The good news is if these drugs are given at the appropriate doses with appropriate dose adjustment, which kind of gets lost sometimes with whatever we publish and present. We are able to maintain people for long periods of time. So I try and do anywhere between six and eight cycles of treatment if I can, get the best possible response. And then, you know, there's a lot of data to speak to maintenance approaches with all of these drugs, both in the transplant setting and the non-transplant setting. And in either cases, when maintenance has been added on, we've been able to keep people in remission for much, much longer. This is obviously balanced with quality of life here as well, because If somebody is absolutely miserable on these drugs, then you have to either modify the doses for sure, but sometimes you're just unable to continue treatment on some patients for a protracted length of time. So I think all of this has to be adjusted to that particular patient. My preference is to keep people on treatment for a longer duration of time. It's obviously dictated by toxicities.
0: So, you mentioned before the issue of the younger patient, and how do you approach those patients, 60, 65, where you're thinking about transplant in terms of their initial treatment?
1: So again, we do use combinations initially. And, you know, our kind of combination of choice has been lenalidomide with bortezomib and dexamethasone. With that, we see very high response rates. The only time when I will not use the lenalidomide, bortezomib, dex combination would have been in a situation like this gentleman, for example, with his renal dysfunction. I would not start out by using lenalidomide because, you know, in renal failure, you hold on to lenalidomide longer and toxicities of lenalidomide a little bit higher. So in this situation, I would consider using the cyborg dex regimen, which is cytoxan, bortezomib and dexamethasone, which is essentially what we've done with this gentleman as well. So the goal always is combinations of treatment. Combinations of treatments gets you your best responses. And once they've achieved a good response, you collect your stem cells and then go forward with the transplant. There's a little bit post-transplant, you know, there's talk about consolidating post-transplant. And the whole notion of consolidation comes again, it's to do with duration of treatment. You know, if we are transplanting patients, they end up getting this initial induction treatment for at most three, four, five cycles. And after the transplant giving them a couple of cycles of that combination is generally a good idea so that you've expose them to these drugs for a protracted period of time, coming back to what we were talking about earlier. And then most of them will go on to maintenance
0: treatments. And in terms of the maintenance treatment, is that usually lenalidomide?
1: So as of right now, at least in the transplant setting, most of the data is with lenalidomide. There's two studies, the Americans, the CLGB study and the French study, which have both shown that a doubling of progression-free survival once patients have gone on to lenalidomide. There is also data from the HOVON looking at bortezomib maintenance. And this is, you know, bortezomib was given every other week in patients for up to two years. And here there was a benefit, again, again, in terms of progression-free survival with a hint of a survival benefit as well. So the default regimen or the most commonly used maintenance regimen in my practice at least is lenalidomide maintenance. I do tend to use bortezomib maintenance also specifically in people where lenalidomide is not able to hold that disease down. We do use bortezomib once every other week given subcutaneously, extremely well tolerated, but that's not as common as lenalidomide maintenance.
0: Let's spend the rest of our time talking about the issue of relapse refractory disease. And I think your 56-year-old man looks like a good case to talk about. He looks like he kind of went down that route that you just described. You know, got the initial RVD up front, gets an autograft, transplant, gets put on maintenance lenalidomide, but then has disease progression while on the lenalidomide after 13 months. Can you just talk briefly about his case in terms of how he presented and how he tolerated the initial treatment? And then we can focus on what you did when we had disease progression.
1: Sure. So his was a very classic presentation of his myeloma. He, in fact, presented not with any symptoms. He was seen by his primary care physician and it was just routine blood work. And all that they found was a high globulin. And that high globulin then prompted a whole bunch of other investigations. When he had a globulin level of about 10 at the time of his presentation, he had, I believe it was four grams of protein, which was an IgG kappa M component. Then further workup, he was not anemic, not symptomatic, but when they did x-rays, we did find lytic lesions on his x-rays. So it was just just basically blood testing, which detected his myeloma. Obviously, if he'd not had his blood test and waited long enough, you know, some of these would have manifested. He would have manifested with anemia over time more than likely. And if his bone disease got ahead of him, he would have presented like our previous gentleman had. So his was kind of, you know, detected on biochemical markers and then x-rays, etc., confirmed it. A bone marrow confirmed the diagnosis of myeloma at The outset, I do think he had very normal standard risk cytogenetics. He had nothing abnormal going on. He went on to lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone. We did have to drop his dose of dexamethasone because he had a hard time tolerating. This was a guy who was working and his was kind of an office desk job. He had a hard time concentrating. He tried to continue to work through his lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dex, and in fact did manage to work through that. I did drop his dexamethasone for two reasons. One was he was not concentrating, and two was he put on a lot of weight, and he put on literally 20 pounds in, it was I think six or eight weeks. So that was the only dose we dropped. He initially was getting bortezomib intravenously because this was about two years back. He did develop neuropathy, And the neuropathy, I believe he developed, I think it was in fourth or fifth cycle that he developed his neuropathy, tingling, numbness, pain. We dropped his dose of bortezomib and he was able to get to transplant. The one thing I do remember is post transplant, his neuropathy did get a whole lot worse. And then through maintenance, it got better over time. So right now, you know, he's been maintained on lenalidomide 10 milligrams. He's tolerated that beautifully. And what he has is just a biochemical relapse. So his numbers have gone up. It's not as if he's necessarily very symptomatic, but his numbers certainly when he was in a complete remission. So he had no monoclonal protein, which was detectable. And now it's up to about a monoclonal protein of 1.5 grams still is not anemic or any of those other features.
0: So before you talk about what you recommended to him at this point, just one more point about the neuropathy you were talking about. We mentioned the issue of the subcutaneous bortezomib, and at least in terms of the research, it looks like there's a lot less neuropathy when you use it that way, particularly if it's used weekly. That's been seen in the trials. I'm curious, in your own clinical experience, whether you think you can see a difference in the amount of neuropathy now using more sub Q weekly.
1: We certainly see a lot lower rates of neuropathy. There's no question about it. And, you know, the interesting thing here is even if you've had neuropathy with bortezomib when you gave it to patients intravenously, when you switch to subcutaneous, because sometimes we just have to go back to the drugs we've used before, some of them tolerated quite well. Some, even with subcutaneous bortezomib, will have horrendous neuropathy. So it's not an all or none phenomenon, but the rate of neuropathy absolutely has diminished significantly. I would say it's diminished by about two, two fold at least, which is huge. The other nice thing about the subcutaneous version is because there's no issues around neuropathy, one can keep patients on these drugs for a long, long time. Most times when we were using the intravenous version of bortezomib, you know, we had to stop, not necessarily because responses were lost, but a lot of times because of toxicities. And we're seeing less and less of that now. So it's made a big difference, I believe.
0: So the challenge of a patient who is having disease progression in terms of scans or blood work is very common in oncology. You see that in almost every kind of tumor where people, you can see their tumors getting worse, but they might feel fine as this man did. So I'm curious how you thought through the question of whether or not he needed to be treated right now, or you could just watch him for a little bit
1: you know, with him, he's young. We talked about different options. Obviously, we talked about a lot of clinical trial options, which are available to our patients with myeloma. And my preference always is if there's a good clinical trial that he can access and would be the right thing for him, we would consider doing that. This gentleman had had an imid based treatment. He had progressed while on an imid based treatment, and he hadn't seen a proteasome inhibitor for nearly a year and a half. He'd seen, it prior to his transplant. So what I wanted to do with him was expose him to a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib. And we had an ongoing trial where we've used an HDAC inhibitor in combination with proteasome inhibitors. And that was something I'd offered to him. You know, he had other options as well. And he had other options specifically with all of the drugs which are approved now. You have carfilzomib, which is approved for exactly a patient who's absolutely similar to this. So it's not somebody who necessarily has to be bortezomib refractory, but if he has been prior exposed to both lenalidomide and bortezomib and has relapsed, he can certainly be treated with carfilzomib. The other drug that he could go on to would be parmalidamide. I think my sense is out in the community, there's a greater chance of reaching out to these recently approved drugs. We tend to use some of our clinical trials more and which is why he ended up going on an HDAC inhibitor in combination with bortezomib. And how did he do? He's on the treatment as of right now. We're using the bortezomib subcutaneously so he's tolerating that fine. We've switched him to once a week and he's continuing on the HDAC inhibitor and doing fine so far.
0: Yeah, when I saw this write-up, I was thinking, oh, this would be a good patient for carfilzomib. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what carfilzomib is and why and how it's different from bortezomib.
1: Sure. So carfilzomib falls into the same category of proteasome inhibitors, as I was mentioning. The difference between bortezomib and carfilzomib is bortezomib is a boronic acid derivative of the proteasome inhibitors. It is a reversible proteasome inhibitor. This one specifically, carfilzomib, is a epoxy ketone. It has more of an effect on the chymotryptic and the caspase-like activity. So more pronounced effect on the caspase-like activity, which then causes supposed. Supposedly apoptosis. So this is differences at kind of the basic structural biochemical level, so to speak. In terms of the drugs themselves, they are different in how they're given. Bortezomib, I think most of us are familiar with. It's the, either the day 1, four, 8, and 11 schedule, or you can now do the weekly schedule, which has been adopted. For carfilzomib, we are doing treatment. It's days 1, 2, 8, 9, 15, 16. So two days in a row for three weeks in a row. That's how it's given. As of right now, it's given intravenously and the starting dose at least per the label is 20 and 27 mg per meter square. You start with 20 and then go up to 27 the following cycle. Toxicities are certainly a little bit different between the two drugs. Certainly not seen neuropathy with Cofilzumib, so that's a plus, so that if you have somebody who's had significant neuropathy with a bortezomib-containing regimen, and you still believe that they're proteasome inhibitor-sensitive, you know, carfilzomib would be a very appropriate drug to go to. There are other toxicities that have been noted, and some of them being around fluid retention. There have been some cases of cardiac toxicity associated with carfilzomib, and I do believe that if you dose the drug appropriately with the right duration of dosing. So, you know, give the drug a little bit slower than what's even recommended. It's generally well-tolerated.
0: And what about the antimyeloma effect? Do we know how it compares, for example, to bortezomib?
1: So I don't think we know that as yet. There's a head-to-head comparison trial which is ongoing as we speak, where it's being compared to bortezomib, and we'll see what the data looks like. You know, in my mind, I don't know whether that's going to make a big difference in terms of how we use this drug. I think to me, it's an additional tool in what we have for our patients with myeloma until the day when we can say we're curing people. You know, the more drugs we have, the better it is. At some point we are going to need to use all of these drugs in the treatment of our patients with myeloma. The nice thing about these drugs is, you know, the toxicities of carfilzomib are different from the toxicities of bortezomib. And that's why you can then tailor your proteasome inhibitor to your patient phenotype. For example, when I was talking earlier about patients with neuropathy who cannot necessarily get bortezomib at the outset, which is about 15 to 20 percent of myeloma patients, we certainly have an option for them now, and we can use a drug like carfilzomib in that situation. So I do think all of these drugs eventually going to be used in the treatment of all of our patients, and it's just that we have more choices now.
0: You mentioned the other recently approved agent, another IMID, immune modulatory agent like lenalidomide, pomalidomide. What is it, when is it used, and what's your experience with it?
1: So pomalidomide is the latest imid, as you pointed out, which is approved. So we started off with thalidomide, then came lenalidomide, and the third one now is pomalidomide. And really, pomalidomide is a fairly potent imid. And in fact, with every generation of new imids, the potency has gone up. And, you know, very simplistically speaking, I can say that that's reflected by the doses that we use, right? With the thalidomide, we used 100 and 200 milligrams. We went all the way up to 400 also. Lenalidomide, you're using a much lower dose of 25 milligrams. Now the approved dose for pomalidomide is four milligrams. So pomalidomide is certainly a very active drug. It would be a very reasonable choice for this specific patient as well because the way it was fast-track approved was for lenalidomide refractory patients. So this one was on lenalidomide maintenance. One could assume that he was lenalidomide refractory and then gone on to pomalidomide. But anybody who's been exposed to an IMID, lenalidomide for sure, and then a proteasome inhibitor also can in fact go on to pomalidomide. We've seen nice responses in people who've had all of these drugs before. And the toxicities of pomalidomide, it's actually a fairly well-tolerated drug. It's extremely well-tolerated. You do see a little more in terms of myelotoxicity, so your count's going down. But outside of that, these off-target side effects like drug rashes, et cetera, are much, much lower with pomalidomide. So a good drug, very useful. And, you know, we're already using it now in clinical trials, at least in combination approaches.